Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick, your host. We are all quite familiar with the put a geologger on the back of a bird and see where it goes school of ornithological research. But in the next decade, that sort of thing is going to be old news. De rigueur, even. Sure, the technology will probably advance such that smaller and smaller birds can be tracked at finer and finer scales, but the basic idea is well known and well-worn at this point. No, the next wave of mind-blowing bird research is going to involve putting an actual video camera on the bird and allowing us to see the world from the bird's point of view. Yes, I know, bird's eye view is right there, but I'll stay away. We've done some of this before on big and bulky birds like eagles, but there are obvious limitations to this practice. Namely, that you can't really use wild birds because you'll never get the camera back. And you honestly can't run a video camera for more than a few hours before the battery dies, so there's not really any way to guarantee that you'll record any interesting behavior other than the bird flying around and sitting in places. But a group of Japanese scientists attempted to solve this problem with some streaked shearwaters, a common Western Pacific pelagic species, which solves the problem of getting the camera back as these birds return like clockwork to their nesting burrows after feeding for up to a week offshore. So you know where they're going to be, but the problem of teaching the camera to prioritize recording certain interesting behaviors is the difficult nut to crack. But these researchers, led by Kai Tenigaki from Osaka University, created an artificial intelligence-enabled biologger that was able to essentially recognize outlier behavior, essentially rare behavior, and turn on to record for five minutes when it determined something interesting was happening. I have no idea exactly how they did this. The actual work is beyond me. In the paper, there are terms like binary decision trees and isolation forests. I don't know what any of that means, but the resulting video footage is fantastic because they were able to get fascinating video from the perspective of a street shearwater. For instance, Videos of the bird coursing over the ocean and suddenly plummeting into the water where you see a small flock of shearwaters flying underwater. I don't know if you knew they did this. They actually flap their wings underwater towards a growing ball of fish. It's very cool. It's cinematic even. And of course, for bird research, it's potentially groundbreaking. I'll put the link in the show notes as well as a link to an article from the website Defector that includes the video footage. It is worth checking out. The next step is obviously to watch these through some sort of virtual reality headset so you too can be a strict share water for five minutes. And who wouldn't want that? On the show this week, more talk about data. I'm joined by Washington Post climate reporter Harry Stevens to talk about how, by contributing to eBird, you are helping to tell the story about bird population trends, both positive and negative, to non-birders as well as birders. All that after this week's Rear Birds. 
This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of January 2024. It's becoming something of a joke to lead off with yet another ridiculous rarity from South Texas, but the Rare Bird portal is still wide open in the lower valley, and the latest find might be the most extraordinary yet. Earlier this week, a young crane hawk was photographed in Salonino in Starr County. This is an ABA second record. The first was a bird that spent the winter of 1987-88 in the valley, so it's been some time since a crane hawk was seen in the United States. Crane hawk is found throughout Latin America as far north as central Tamaulipas, so not all that far from the southern border. This species has also been documented as a free-flying exotic in Florida. It is a lanky, slightly goofy-looking hawk with unique double-jointed legs that enable it to reach into bromeliads and crevices for prey, a behavior that is also known as African harrier hawk, so the species are not closely related. Interestingly enough, though Texas has had a remarkable winter, none of the species recorded there are first ABA records, though it certainly feels like one of those isn't all that far off. One other first in this period, a Eurasian tree sparrow in Shawnee County, Kansas, represents a first for that state. This established non-native species has been close to the border of Kansas in the past, as it had traditionally been found along the Mississippi River from St. Louis north to southeastern Iowa. Eurasian tree sparrow was introduced to North America in 1870 in St. Louis, and unlike the closely related house sparrow, they have mostly stayed put, though there are records of vagrants throughout the upper Midwest and as far east as New Brunswick and as far west as Cisco. Saskatchewan. Those are the highlights for this past week, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and on ABA Community. Birders use eBird to log their own personal lists to help find birds that they would like to see, but the heart of eBird Maybe even the dream of eBird was to create this massive public database of bird sightings that can turn into opportunities to monitor bird populations. That is, in fact, what Harry Stevens, the Climate Lab columnist for the Washington Post, has done in a new interactive feature on WashingtonPost.com. He's with me to talk about it and probably eBird's remarkable database. Hello, Harry. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Nate? Thanks for having me. Um, Just to be absolutely clear before we get started, you are not a birder. At least not I'm yet. Not, I'm not a birder. Uh, I was basically at zero on the birding level <laughs> before I started working on the story. Now I'm at maybe a one. Oh, all right. Yeah. Nice progress. I've, got, yeah. uh, I, I've, all, I've played with the eBird data quite a lot, but yeah. uh, I also have Merlin on my phone now. Oh, right on. So uh, you know, I used to always listen to podcasts on my way to work, but now I've taken the headphones out and I'm trying to listen for bird song, which... Uh, you know, it takes a little bit more patience, but it's actually nice. <laughs> it's a nice way to kind of connect with the natural world. And then, of course, the the fact that it can identify species is, yeah. uh, is very cool. I don't I don't know if the identifications are correct. I have no way of verifying, but I hope they're right. <laughs> they're mostly right. It's actually a whole lot better than it has, honestly, any right to be. I guess it's been a couple of years since it first came out. Maybe it was a year, two, yeah, two years ago. And yeah, I remember... You know, Shazam for birding. You remember the app? Shazam has always yeah, been yeah, like the dream, yeah. uh, but no one really figured out how to do it until until recently. And it's it's incredible how how good it is, to be completely honest. Yeah. Interestingly, the uh, sound identification seems to work better for me than the photo. And that's just mm. because I had never attempted to take a photograph of a bird before. <laughs> so I'm sure, you know, for your listeners, this is all obvious, but uh, it's actually pretty difficult. 
it's yeah. it's not not easy. Yeah. yeah. No, you have to have the right camera settings. Phone. It takes practice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, with the phone. Oh, yeah. Get out of here. It's not even. It's very very difficult unless it's right in front of you. Yeah. 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 And then if you, you try to get right in front of it, of course, uh, yeah, it's gone. It becomes alerted to your presence and yeah. Uh, yeah. flies away. Even that technology has improved quite a bit in the time since. Um, you know, iPhones started coming out. I mean, you can zoom in a little bit, but it's still pretty difficult. A lot of people will take their phones and like hold it up to their binoculars or to their spotting scope. There are some adapters that you can put your, take photos and video through that. And you know, the capabilities of photo and video on these smartphones these days is, is pretty incredible provided you're close. And then with, yeah. you know, the added boost of like a telescope, it's, you can get some really cool stuff. Yeah. Feel no, like I a, feel like a PBS videographer when you get something really cool. <laughs> it would be great. I mean, I could see how uh, I have a coworker who's a bit of a birder, and uh-huh. she was telling me that once you get into it, you know, you just start uh, acquiring gear. It's like any hobby. I, yeah, I could see how no, the, the accoutrements of birding might add up after a while. Yeah, I've got to actually got a new camera lens coming in the mail today that I'm kind of stoked about. But that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, just I, I know what birders see when they look at eBird, but what do you, as a non-birder? But an expert in data visualization, what do you see when you look at eBird? So that's what drew me to it at first was this is, a, I think, a relatively new feature on the eBird website, which is yeah. a snapping tool that they have, um, which is, you know, it's not just that it's such a rich database, but also that the design is like really first class. I mean, it's... it's uh, Really easy to use, extremely intuitive, and the maps are just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for so many different species, you can see, um, you know, range data down to, you know, these 27 square kilometer cells, which is mm-hmm. pretty highly spatially resolved. And, um, the, you know, the trend data, which is what drew me to it because I'm always interested in, you know, how things are changing. You know, eBird is relatively new. So if you look at, older bird databases yeah. like the you know, North American Breeding Bird Survey or Christmas Bird Count, they have a lot longer record. And so they can sort of make stronger scientific claims about you know, the long-term trends in bird populations. Mm-hmm. The eBird's just showing uh, 10-year trends right now. So, you know, you can't make any conclusions about how, for example, climate change is affecting bird populations over such a short time period. But there's still, even in 10 years, um, you know, just really fascinating trends. Uh, and also, you know, I think and we'll talk about this, but a lot of really concerning trends. Mm-hmm. When you look at the eBird maps, how do you turn them into maps that you want to use for your purposes? So, so the maps that are on the interactive feature on Washington Post are essentially what species are, what, how they're trending positively or negatively and where that is happening. But that's not necessarily what people see when they look at eBird. You know, a lot of birders are familiar with when you go to eBird and say you want to find a certain species, you pull up uh, a map that shows locally where this bird can be found. You can zoom in and you can find points where people have seen that bird and you can go there and you can find them. But that's that's sort of immediate. We're looking for birds that have been seen in the last, I don't know, two weeks, 30 days, whatever, for our purposes. But for your purposes, you want that sort of long-term data. How, are you, how do you turn what we see when we look at eBird into what we see when we look at the Washington Post interactive feature. So the Cornell Lab has done something. Cornell Lab is what manages the mm-hmm. eBird database and build all these tools. So they've done something really incredible, which is that they've made an API that's mm-hmm. free to use. So anybody can just sign up for the API. 
And then if you have a little bit of coding ability, you can you query the database. And so you can get back data on you know, all of the bird species that they have in the database. Mm-hmm. Um, this really detailed data on trends and ranges and so on and so forth. And so uh, as somebody who works with a lot of data, this was like one of the easiest APIs <laughs> I've ever used. Yeah. A lot of times like I'll use government databases and you have to read pages of documentation in a PDF and you know it might take days to figure out how to use the database effectively. And eBirds, like I was up and running right away. So they've done an incredible job of making that data you know, easy for people to use. Um, and then so like, like you said, I think if you're a birder, you know, you're probably more interested in what you're going to find if you're out, you know, in your backyard or, you know, on a hike. Um, but for me, I was more interested in, you know, the broader trends and I had to make a few design decisions. Like obviously birds aren't, uh, aware of like the geographic boundaries of countries. Right. Um, and famously so, yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, so eBird they've done a really good job in their maps of like making it so that you can pan around the globe and zoom in and see mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, so my maps were a little bit simpler than that. I just wanted to show the continental United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there are certain species like, um, you know, warblers in the Northeast that spend a lot of time in Canada. And right. That was cut off from my maps. And then likewise, you know, species down in the Southwest, desert birds that you know, spent a lot of time in Mexico and couldn't see those. But I still think that just being able to, you know, put in a bird species and see the map of the U.S., see where birds are increasing and decreasing and also their sort of relative abundance uh, made it very easy to just quickly get a sense of, you know, how birds are doing, at least over the last 10 years. Was there anything in the data that when you started putting it together that that really surprised you or shocked you, knowing that, you you know, you didn't have a ton of bird experience coming into it, but what was sort of your impression of the data as you started seeing how these maps were looking? Yeah, it was, it, at first I didn't really know what I was looking at. And so right. I called up birders and ornithologists yeah. and sort of had them explain what might be interesting. But even without having any you know, real knowledge, it was obvious that there were a lot of species that were declining. Like it, it seemed that there were more species that uh, had seen population decreases than population increases over the last 10 years. And it was easy to confirm that. Um, just by counting up the number of species that had gone down versus gone up. Uh, so that seemed to me to be the kind of core of what I wanted to write about was like, why is this happening? You know, what has happened to the environment or, or is this just some sort of random, you know, uh, random effect of the data mm-hmm. and nobody knows what the cause of it is, or maybe this is a temporary dip and it's actually trending upwards over the long time. I didn't really know what I was looking at. Mm-hmm. I just saw that a lot of species were trending down. And so that's what spurred me to, to find out more. You and your colleagues at, at the Climate Lab frequently write about you know, climate change, unsurprisingly, uh, and frequently with an eye towards how the data manifests. You, you've already said that the data is not quite, doesn't go back far enough to really get a sense because climate change is a a multi-decade trend. But do you see how the eBird dataset fits into that narrative, even if it is just a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, anytime that you have a change in population or some trend in population, it's going to be multiple causes. So you can't attribute it to, you know, just climate change or, uh, 
just you know human development or any one thing. There's there's lots of pressures on bird populations. Um, however, one of the sort of strongest examples of climate change having a negative effect on bird populations is those arid land birds yeah. in the Southwest. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. So one is that um, there's an interesting study, I think came out in 2019, where uh, researchers from Berkeley, I believe, went out to the Mojave Desert and they revisited all these sites that Joseph Grinnell mm. and his collaborators had surveyed in you know the earlier part of the 20th century. Um, and so they went back, they counted the exact same number of species, or they counted the same, not number of species, but they uh, cataloged the species that were there and they found that the populations had decreased by 50%. Mm -hmm. And what makes the Mojave Desert a ideal laboratory for uh, disentangling the multiple causes for bird population declines is that there really hasn't been that much human development in the Mojave yeah. Desert. Um, and so you can be fairly certain that whatever population trends you're seeing are are more as a result of you know changes to the climate. Yeah. Um, of course, there could be things that are happening outside of the desert that also have a negative effect on the populations. But at least it's a it's a better laboratory than places where there are all sorts of confounding variables like human development. Um, and so the researchers there they also you know use statistical techniques to try to suss out the different causes. Um, uh, but one of the other things that's happening with arid land birds is that they already live quite close to their physiological limits. Like it's, it's hot in the desert and there's not that much water. And so the birds that live there are like well adapted to that kind of environment. Um, but you know, still like life is difficult. And so if you turn up the heat a little bit or you increase the uh, amount of drought, that is going to stress bird populations even more. And so in that paper, they concluded that climate change was really a major driver of those population declines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, birds are sort of interesting because sort of unique to a lot of, you know, organisms in the natural world. They are barometers of a lot of different potential issues, not just climate change, as you say, but also land use, habitat, pesticides. Uh, I mean, you name it, birds are a good illustrator of that, of that decline. Um, do you think that this sort of data mining can offer insights into the effects of other threats in other parts of the U.S. Um, in addition to issues with climate change? It's absolutely the case that uh, human development has had a strong effect on bird populations. In many cases, a, a negative effect, although not always. Yeah. Um, but arguably, I mean, I think it's it's. I think most people would agree that human development has had a stronger effect than climate change on trends in bird populations. And by human development, I just mean like farming, ranching, yeah. building towns and cities. Um, so, you know, if you look at the grassland birds, you know, a, a very large amount of native grasslands in the United yeah. States have been converted to agriculture. Uh, you know, something like 60 or 80%. There's, there's different estimates, but you know, that's just a huge loss of habitat for mm -hmm. birds that, you know, nest in tall grasses um, and hide in tall grasses, camouflage in tall grasses and, and, and live there. So um, it's, it's only to be expected that if you change that habitat significantly, that the birds that rely on it are, are going to struggle. Mm -hmm. Um but then, you know, there's all, there's interesting sort of counter examples, um, ones that 
people I was interviewing pointed out to me. So for example, like sometimes human development actually mimics or um, even adds advantages to birds' yeah. natural environments. So you look at peregrine falcons who are you know, doing quite well and they can perch atop, you know, buildings and, mm-hmm. and uh, skyscrapers and that, you know, gives them a, a better view of prey. Um, you look at species like the blue jay, which is, you know, can, can survive basically anywhere as far, I mean, not anywhere, but it's, it's a generalist and it can eat all sorts of things and, uh, is very aggressive around bird feeders. So, you know, you add millions of backyard bird feeders around the country and a species like the blue jay is, is going to do pretty well. Um, so, you know, those sorts of counterexamples are, are, uh, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it, yeah, you know, it for just the bird species, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's nice that you know for them. But uh, yeah. I think you know, for the most part, when you when you have such um, disruption of habitat, you know, most species are going to struggle. So, as someone that uses data to explain a lot of interesting environmental and climate phenomena, do you look at birds now as a really useful tool for explaining that sorts of thing? In in part because you know there's this huge community of people that are out there observing it. There are all these people putting their data into eBird. Um, and even people who aren't doing that are, are aware of and feel a connection to birds. Using birds to explain these sort of issues would resonate with a lot of different people, not just birders. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the points that I made in the story that I wrote was that birds are an environmental bellwether. So when you see bird populations declining, that can be a sign of other environmental problems, uh, you know, pollution and climate change and habitat loss and, and all these things. Um, and the reason that we can use birds to be this kind of barometer of the environment is, as you mentioned, like millions of people all over the world are going out looking for birds mm-hmm. and you know, writing down or logging on their eBird checklist what they saw. And for somebody who doesn't bird, like this was one of the most amazing discoveries of the story. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you go back to someone like Henry David Thoreau around Walden Pond, you know, he's making meticulous notes of mm-hmm. bird populations there. Um, and then, you know, so people can go back now, you know, more than a hundred years later and see, you know, when birds are, uh, you know, migration times for, for the birds that Thoreau saw and see how they're changing. Um, and so it just happens to be the case that Lots of people enjoy going out and writing down the birds that they saw or keeping note of the birds they saw. It's probably something that people have been doing for thousands of years. And it's only with the advent of the internet that you can actually take advantage of the fact that people are noticing all of the birds that are around them. And that's the sort of brilliant insight of, you know, I mean, it's not just eBird, you know, you have also open source data collection projects like Wikipedia, mm-hmm. which also kind of revolutionized uh, the, the collective knowledge of humanity, made it accessible to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a similar way, like there's all this information that was out there about what birds people were observing. And it just took something like eBird to aggregate it all and be able to make sense of it. Yeah. Birders have been collecting data for a long time. It's sort of one of the one of the one of the common themes of of our of our hobby and has been since it became a thing um you know christmas bird counts breeding bird surveys these are all sort of community citizen science projects that have been ongoing since the 20s since the 60s but it you're right it's that public accumulation of that data and the public accessibility of that data that is sort of the secret sauce that makes 
eBird work. I mean, I've been doing breeding bird surveys for years. I've done Christmas bird counts for years. You submit that data, it goes into a database and you just assume that people are going to be using it. Now that eBird is public, you know, people like you can go to it and find it and get access to it and do interesting things with it and tell interesting stories with it. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it on earth as far as natural history, you know, collation of data. It's, it's remarkable, truly. Yeah, and I, people were as fascinated with like weeds as they are with birds. <laughs> right, yeah. We can get some really cool stuff. Weeds but... <laughs> as a barometer. Yeah. But there's not people going out and writing down all the weeds that they see. And so, yeah. you know, not we, as many. We can use birds in this way that we can't with other species. Yeah. One of the interesting th- things about birds more generally uh, as barometers of measuring the impact of climate change and other environmental phenomena is their sort of plasticity, their ability to, to move so long as appropriate habitat is sort of available to them. Do you see that even in the sort of 10-year data set? Do you see populations of birds sort of moving northward? Because I can tell you that as anecdotally, um, as birders, we've, we've been kind of keeping track of that for, for decades. You know, birds that we think of as southern U.S. species like northern cardinal, Carolina wren, red-bellied woodpecker, stuff like that, kind of showing up further and further north into New England, Atlantic Canada, all the way do you see that sort of data visualized in these population trends as well? Yeah, there are definitely some examples of that. And right now I can't think of any specific species, but I mm-hmm. do remember seeing that in the data and wondering if it's something that I should have highlighted in the story because the time period of the data was too short to draw really strong conclusions about climate change. I didn't want to make mm-hmm. the claim yeah, of that course. this yeah. northward shift was because of climate change. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, there's absolutely species uh, where you can see that shift where you know they're, they're trending downward in the sort of southern part of their range and they're trending upward in the northern part of their range. Um, and so, I, you know, I, one of the things that's going to be cool is like if eBird's around for another 30 years or 50 mm-hmm. years, it's going to become an even stronger scientific tool. Going back to the interactive feature on the Washington Post, there's a lot of sort of, you can enter your zip code, you can enter your uh, town, you can kind of get an, a snapshot of what bird populations are doing in your area. Um, what do you hope people get out of that process? So hopefully it's useful for birders. Yeah. Uh, because when I was testing the story out with a lot of my coworkers, they, a lot of them didn't know like one bird to put into the... Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. So they were like, I, I just don't even know. I any- noticed the prompt is like hawk or sparrow. <laughs> Very <Yeah>. general. <laughs> try, try to start typing something so that you yeah, get right, right. something to look for. Um, and so then that was where this idea of like just putting your city in mm-hmm. uh, and seeing the trends for the most abundant species in mm-hmm. your city came from. Um, and I, I think it's interesting, even if you don't know a lot about birds, to yeah. put it in your city and see like, oh, the ring-billed gull is like the most abundant species in my city. And, oh, the, you know, it's trending downwards. You know? yeah. It gives you a sort of connection to the nature of the place you live, which is something that I think a lot of people, myself included, like don't really appreciate on a day-to-day basis. Because, you know, we live in, I mean, I live in an apartment building. I take the train to work. I work in the office. I take the train home. And mm-hmm. so a lot of it is kind of mediated by, you know, buildings and uh, infrastructure and there's not a lot of nature. Um, and so, you know, just seeing, you know, what's happening with these bird species in, in your city can remind you that you, 
you know, you're sort of part of nature. Mm-hmm. And since working on this story, I've been trying to focus more on the birds that are around me and you know, listening for bird song and using this Merlin app to try to identify birds. So, uh, it, you know, ho- it had that effect on me. Hopefully it has effect on that same effect on other readers. We gotcha. We gotcha. One of us. One of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now I got to get the big lens. <laughs> Yo, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> um, Ringville Gold is interesting because like I've sort of seen, it, it's, it's, it's hyper abundant across much of the, you know, continent, but you know, their populations really shift based on all sorts of weird things. Like I can tell you the ones around where I live uh, started declining in my area because the landfill that they would spend all day at started you know, using a different sort of waste management process. Like they would churn the, churn the garbage up as they were putting it in there. So there wasn't so much like open garbage, which would attract the goals. Um, I just thought that was... That's fascinating. Yeah. There's all these little, all these little micro reasons that cause birds to change based on, you know, very fine, on the very fine scale that, um, you know, in addition to kind of large scale phenomena. But that's just such a perfect illustration of why, you know, you have to be hesitant to sort of attribute the change in bird populations to any one, you know, big trend. Because while, you know, climate change and, you know, sort of the large scale habitat Mm -hmm. change, will have an effect on bird populations. There's all these little things that are happening that yeah. only people who are you know, out there looking at birds will be able to, to know and understand. The link to the interactive feature is available in the show notes. Please check it out. Harry Stevens is the analyst. You can find more of his work and that of his colleagues at the Washington Post Climate Lab and their climate section. There's a lot of really interesting stuff there. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Harry. Thank you, Nate. Really appreciate it. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Don't forget to join the APA if you enjoy this podcast. You'll be eligible for a lot of great benefits, including our magazines, all our really cool online stuff like the magazine archive, the new identification portal. I think it's a portal. feels like a portal. Discounts to partners like OM Systems, Pudio Books, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, and more. You can get information about how to join the ABA at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Mara Berry of Manitowoc, Wisconsin, Sydney Jensen of Ashland, Oregon, Marlene Lessard of Terrebonne, Quebec, Jamie Partridge of Dover, United Kingdom, I assume, Asarin of Paradise, Michigan, Kelly Smith of Ontario, New York, and Darren Tollum of Landenburg, Pennsylvania, all of whom recently joined the ABA, noted this podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Wayne Clockner, who's very much looking forward to a Shearwater-themed soap opera called The Young and the Petrels. Technical production is by John Lowry, who can't wait till we stick a video camera on a red-tailed hawk and call the resulting footage the bold and the beautios. Additional help comes from Maggie Fitzgibbon and Greg Neese, whose Corvid-themed soap opera, based off the footage that obviously would come from cameras on a flock of ravens, is called Jays of Our Lives. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Blue Sky, we are at ABA Birds. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Bird Like Tom. See you next week.